Alright, hi everybody. My, uh, my name is Rob Foster. I'm a musician and teacher here in Kansas City. Um, I'm basically going to be starting an interview show here with a bunch of musicians. Uh, we're going to get on music teachers, musicians, uh, luthiers, music theater people, kind of kind of anybody that, that has kind of a music background. And uh, we're going to talk about all sorts of different topics involving music and, and teaching and whatnot. Uh, my first guest is a musician, music lover, and teacher, um, Diana Foster. Welcome to Music Talk. Thank you. Yep. Uh, how was that intro? Good. It was pretty awesome, right? Yep. So, um, so I know that you played a lot when you were a kid, you know, and uh, doing kind of a bunch of different instruments and things, and uh, you're definitely, uh, definitely been a teacher and. I, I want to get, I have tons of teaching questions here at the end, but um, the first thing I wanted to ask you was, um, who, who is Maynard Zip? Uh, that's my dad, and um, a musician for a long time, and a father of seven, so. Mm -hmm. um, what, what, what did he do music-wise? Um, he came from a long family of musicians and started playing and taking lessons for sure by 10. I don't know if there was a lot before that, but I know he started accordion lessons at 10 and starting to play. And that continued through his entire life up until now. And he's 81 now. Mm -hmm. And, um... I know as a teenager, he moved from the accordion to the piano and guitar, I think. Um, I think he told me he got his first guitar from Sears Roebuck, mm -hmm. and, which is funny. It was a mail-order guitar. And then uh, he started a, after we met my mom and they married, they started a combo in Omaha, Nebraska and played accordion and drums. Um, that would have been interesting to hear what that sounded yeah. like. Would that and have been early 50s then or that 40s? That would have been, no, about fifth, between 55 and 60, yeah, some yeah. there. They graduated in 54. Yeah. So it would have been around that time. And then throughout his life, he had many different bands and played in many mm -hmm. different bands, but um, had a continued love of music mm -hmm. and uh, always played by ear also. Mm -hmm. And shameless plug, he's, I mean, he's a little bit of a rock star. I mean, he's, he just got into the Nebraska Country Music Hall of Fame a couple of years ago. He I did. mean, he's been playing 60 years or something, he did. right? He, yeah. he grew up in Nebraska and... Um, lived in Nebraska a number of times. He currently lives back in Nebraska and mm -hmm. um, three of the seven of us kids I think were born in Nebraska. Yeah. So we have a He's pretty got big some huge ties there. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. We, I, I forgot to mention, uh, you uh, are unfortunately my mother as mm -hmm. well, you know, so he's my grandfather we're talking about here. Uh, but, um, and so he, he started you playing music. Correct. Right. Yeah. Definitely started um, me having the appreciation for music and the love of music. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then when I was in eighth grade, uh, we were, um, my sister and I were asked by him to be in the family band, mm -hmm. which was kind of funny because our first reaction was, um, hmm, okay. Mm -hmm. And we were a little lukewarm on it because mm -hmm. we were just at that age of being teenagers and mm -hmm. thinking about mm -hmm. maybe dating in the next couple of years. So the thought of being with my parents in a family band playing every Friday and Saturday night mm -hmm. instead of out with friends was kind of interesting. But uh, it definitely it grew into yeah. a huge love and a huge part of my family to be or my life to be in that band. Sure, yeah. And the family band was a bunch of you over the years at random times, but it was also a bunch of people from the community, right? Random guitar players and stuff. Right, right. It's like a lot of morphing, right? Of it different, was a lot know. of morphing. I think mm -hmm. four of the seven of us kids played in the band, mm -hmm. and uh, depending, there was a time where it was only family, but then there was a time where um, there were other members in the community uh, mm -hmm. in the band. 
Yeah. And, and that band, that family band was pretty primarily Iowa instead of Nebraska. Mm -hmm. We lived right. in Iowa at the time. And getting back to your Friday and Saturday thing, I know you guys have joked for, and, and dad has joked about that, that to, to like date a zip girl or whatever you had to date on Sundays or whatever, that's right, right? That's right. That's kind of or silly. Or come be a roadie and carry equipment yeah, right, in and yeah. out. One of the two. Yeah, this is what you get, right? <laughs> you have to come be a roadie. <laughs> that's the rule. Um, yeah, so I know for both of us, um, he's been kind of the music-wise, music he's been kind of the patriarch of the family, you know, mm -hmm. kind of making this what maybe he didn't really understand at first, but kind of now seeming like making this huge lineage of musicians since, mm -hmm. and you said that his dad, uh, his dad what is played that music yeah. also. I know I remember as a child hearing his dad play piano. Mm -hmm. And then in later years, uh, when I interviewed dad for the Country Music Hall of Fame, mm -hmm. I heard that he also played violin. I didn't know that to mm -hmm. later years. Yeah. But he's he's obviously been, you know, a huge influence music-wise. I mean, he's been a huge influence on many things, but, but music-wise, mm -hmm. this lineage of, of each generation kind of starting... Um, we even have, uh, Dan, you know, Dan's son is even playing now, so mm -hmm. now that's the fifth, right? Mm -hmm. So him, Maynard, you you guys, me and Dan, and then his kids now, so that's mm -hmm. like, that's really cool. Um, tell me about uh, you, so you, you definitely played some piano, right? You... And you took band. a couple lessons, right? I took some yeah. lessons in elementary school in piano. Mm -hmm. I would say maybe only a year mm -hmm. or so. And uh, then in the band, I actually started on bass guitar, mm -hmm. not piano to start with. So my sister and I both went and took just maybe one or two bass lessons. Mm -hmm. And then within a pretty short time, we were already playing in a a small town little bar and mm. um and that was on bass guitar yeah yeah and it, before we move on to that was so so tell me some of the places that you guys would be playing i mean and you guys would do the uh you guys would do me and my buddy scott always joke about the animal circuit right, right. the lions club the moose lodge the eagles right, right? american legion right? right that's a that's a garth brooks term he coined that term the animal circuit but like where else would you guys play uh, we played probably more private parties than we played public places. Yeah. Uh, because he had lived in Iowa for years and years. Everyone knew him. So wedding dances, anniversary mm -hmm. dances, birthday parties, um, that type of thing. And we would be hired to go to wherever they had rented and play. Mm -hmm. And then he owned a bar. For a while too. Yeah, that was our, after that. It was though. after yeah, after yeah. that. After yeah. we had all the kids had been at home and played in the band. Yeah, and then but they, I think he played right. in that that venue, but right, yeah. I didn't play there. Yeah. So okay. So then bass. You you've always told me this story about your bass that's always cracked me up. Um, to tell me his, tell me how he told you to play country music. Or how that went? Well, it's really interesting because I, at the time, of course, was more into rock music as far as being a teenager in the 70s, mm -hmm. classic rock mm -hmm. bands, and, and very much into pop and the mm -hmm. Carpenters and everything mm -hmm. all, everybody was into, in, especially girls in the 70s. But his band's always been a country band. And uh, from traditional country to more new country uh, that was starting at that time and so when we went to take lessons um we of course had a love of music by then and and some basic understanding from piano lessons and just being around it but i thought it was interesting more in years later thinking about him telling about how simple it was going to be in in a way not that country music is simple and not interesting but that playing it wasn't really going to be that difficult because many of the, the songs are three chords mm -hmm. or not too many more than that. Yep. So if you're playing in the key of C and you're, you know, really nervous because you've just started and, 
and you're wondering which of the two chords to go to because you're not quite sure. And I'm simplifying this, uh, especially to someone with a music yeah. degree, um, but we didn't have a music degree, um, that, you know, he's like, well, you've got two choices. If you're in C, you're going to F or you're going to G. If you played one and it didn't sound like, it must be the other one. And it was really about that simple, but it was more powerful than that. I realized, not at the time, but later, that number one, it was a way to instill confidence and a way to instill that this thing that we do as a family really isn't that difficult. It's really fun and it's not that difficult that... Um, that it's okay, that you're just, you're trying, you're learning, and you're training your ear to say, well, now I know if it's F or G because I just know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I know from playing in some country bands that there's mistakes all over the place, you know? I mean, people, and, and sometimes they'll throw songs at you right now mm -hmm. and deal with it on stage, and so that, that moment sitting there of, Oh, oh, it's G, you know, and then and then you just you fix it that fast, you know, and and I think you're I think you're right that he, you, he didn't really word it in that way, but he was also, like you just said, with the confidence or whatever of of it's not that big a deal when you mess up, you fix it in a second and then you're back on, and so it's like because you guys were young too, I mean, eight ninth grade. Um, actually, my sister was seventh grade and I was eighth grade. Seventh grade, right? Yeah, so you guys were pretty young. Mm -hmm. And probably in a fairly intimidating scenario with, with it, maybe even having some more adults in the band as well, not just mm -hmm. him, but, and then you guys being out of bars, I mean, that was going to be a probably pretty intimidating situation, but he was really good about that of giving you, wording it in that way of, of he maybe didn't even realize he was doing that, but he, he right. was doing that of giving the confidence. Um, I know that when... I talk to my students about improv and things. There's just some people in the world that that just figure it out, mm -hmm. you know. And that that's kind of what why I wanted to ask you about that because there's uh, and just a, a mini story. Like I remember, like when I played sports and you're you're shooting at the basket and you're sort of turned. You turn so much and then you can shoot it well the next time you come down and you're barely not turned enough then you just when you play basketball you just figure it out you turn less and you shoot it you know it's like nobody tells you that you just do it you know right. and that can you can you speak a little bit about that of people that aren't that that like with like for improv for example that they just are like what do i do what do i play you know and you're like i don't know just try something you know like it's, it's a bit instinctual, but also uh, it's a bit genetic, it's a bit of all of that, but you don't make those mistakes for very long because you do have the ear to know, okay, F is lower than G, and you just have started to figure it out, so you may make those mistakes practicing and at the first gig or two, but you kind of figure it out you just figure it out and I learned to look at the six string guitar and know what a D looked like even though I wasn't playing that and mm -hmm. if I had a question I'd look over and think I don't think that yeah mm -hmm. I, I know what chord he's playing right now so that's the chord I need to be playing mm -hmm. right yeah I just think that's awesome when when people because some people have that and some people don't right. and I, I think that could be that could be a learned skill, I think. You know, obviously something as simple as stare at my cord, it's a D, you know. I right. mean, that, that's a pretty simple thing. Right. But that, that general intuitiveness, I think, is really important with people that some people just don't have naturally. I think, I just think right. that's funny. That, right. Yeah. Um, so, so then you're playing, you're playing in the band and... Tell me a little bit about the not necessarily the the perception of the family and the band, but but taking taking stuff that is like that that you you looked at it as a very positive experience, and and one thing I've definitely learned from you is that taking something that's sort of sort of bad and turning it into something good. I think you're probably the queen at that better than any person I know. Can you talk to me about like? 
for example, like you alluded to it about you, you were starting and you're like, oh, I don't know if I want to be in this band or not, and then see what's happened later. Can you just talk about your general philosophy of, of that attitude a little bit of taking something that you didn't think was going to be good or that wasn't going to be positive and then lemonade in the, le- you know, out of lemons kind of, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I think the same thing's true about your attitude and your perception and your um, thought about life as what we just said about, you know, how you know how to play by ear. You don't even know that you can, except that other people who can say, this is really easy and you can. Mm -hmm. But I think, um, I don't know that I thought uh, playing in the band was a bad idea or that anybody else in the family Mm -hmm. did. But I was a little lukewarm about starting it. But I think that um, you also kind of have that in your blood of what kind of personality you were given, what kind of personality you develop. And that's, I, that's just kind of the person I am that I look at everything and, and decide um, I'm going to make the best of this. And so many of those things I end up growing to love and, mm-hmm. and some of them grew to be fairly good at. Mm-hmm. And um, I think part of it is just the personality that you were given at birth but I think you can develop that and decide that that is the attitude I'm going to have about most things. Mm-hmm. Um, even if they weren't very fun, nor were they very easy at the very beginning, that I'm, I'm going to uh, try to make this an awesome thing and learn from it. And then now, in later life, I look back on some of those things, and this is one of those, to realize the power of that and what that gave to me and what I learned from that situation of being asked in eighth grade to be in the family band. Mm-hmm. This is, I guess, a little more broader, broader question on that, that issue of take of, I think one thing you're really good at is when you do see a problem in a general sense, you're coming at it from a creative standpoint, like where you have like, um, how can I, how can I take this thing that what that's that's bad? Not even that I think is going to be bad, but something that is sort of bad in your life, and you have a creative mentality of okay, well I could change it. Like, um, like I'll give you an example. So so when I had a time where I had to drop, I had the same phone number for a long time, and I had to drop my phone. And I was really annoyed at that, you know, because I'm like, oh, man, look at all the work I'm going to have to do. I'm going to have to change my website. I'm going to have to call all these people. I'm going to have to, you know. But then I thought about it for two seconds, and I'm like, whoa, wait a second. I, I can now send out a, a pretty shameless free advertising to all my friends. Hey, remember me? This is my new phone number. And then I basically got a, a free blast out to my friends about that I'm out here, you know, gigging and stuff. And, um, and that maybe gave me a new, uh, gave me an excuse to redo my website anyway. You know, that, that was like a different mentality on a, on a right. problem that I thought was going to be really annoying. Um, can you talk a minute about, cause I know you do, you're great at that and I'm sure I've rubbed off on you on that. There's a lot of people aren't like that. And that's a huge problem in the world right now that people only see bad yeah, it takes a lot of energy to have that mentality because it can mean extra work. It can mean reframing the way you think and what you're doing. But um, it's pretty powerful if that's the way you live your life, that's for sure. And things tend to work out a little better. And it's easier to do it the older you get, the more life experience you have behind you because you can see the benefits of it. And you can see the benefits of having a positive attitude and turning things around Mm -hmm. and not looking at what's wrong about the situation, but looking at what could be right or how you could make it more right. Mm -hmm. And I, I think I'm better at it. And I see how, how many times that's worked out for me in my life to have that attitude instead of a more negative attitude. And Mm -hmm. yeah. So, um, Cool. So back, so kind of back to music. Tell me about. So this was during high school that you played mostly with the band. Um, tell me a little bit more about uh, you. Uh, tell me about your auditioning for Allstate Orchestra. 
or all state choir, sorry. Okay. Uh, well, when I was a junior or senior, it was either junior or senior year, it was right at the end, I had been hearing some of the kids talk about something, a quartet, they were singing in Des Moines and things they were going to be doing and and I, I had been in choir all four years and really consider myself more of a vocalist than an instrumentalist for sure. And so I went to the teacher. I, I don't remember if I asked the kids or the teacher first and hey, what's going on? It sounds like some, some buzz is going on, like something cool is going on. And um, one, of, one of the groups said that there was a quartet that was going to try out in Des Moines for Iowa Allstate Chorus. And so I was like, well, that kind of sounds like what the athletes do for Allstate band or Allstate uh, basketball. And big deal. Yeah. Big deal. So I was like, I want to do that. I think I, I need to do that. Mm -hmm. And that, that sounds fun. I think I can do that. Mm -hmm. So I went and asked the teacher and she said if I could pull together a quartet um, that we would, um, she would allow me to try out. She would take two quartets. Mm -hmm. And so um, I went and rustled up a tenor, I'm a soprano, mm -hmm. so I rustled up a tenor and an alto and a bass, and we tried out the two quartets, and, and um, It wasn't I, the bass? Uh... Yeah, I knew I had the bass covered because my boyfriend was a bass, and, and so he, uh, which is now right. my husband, yeah. which is now Rob's dad, and that's funny. Yeah, it is funny. Anyway. <laughs> Um, so we go and try out in quartets, and it was a cappella, really difficult music, more mm -hmm. classical music, and and more difficult than as it should be than what we were already singing in in high school, mm -hmm. and in the I, band it was way different. Yeah, than the band way music. different from yeah. the band. Mm -hmm. And um, since I play mostly by ear, I had I I read music because of singing in choir, but you know it wasn't like I was brilliant at it. Mm -hmm. So I really had to practice and I was selected for Allstate Orchestra and um, I don't think I realized the um, the power in that also until mm -hmm. a few years after that. Number one, I hadn't been chosen to be the soprano in the original quartet mm -hmm. and I don't even remember thinking that was terrible or it was ridiculous or in any negative thing other than I realized later that I was advocating for myself to the teacher and saying whatever this elite thing is I want to do that and I think I can do that mm -hmm. and I was the only one of the eight that was mm -hmm. selected yeah. so I think I wasn't far off in what I wanted to try to do even though I wasn't sure I could I didn't even know about it I'd yeah. never heard of it um, but I realized later that that it was really way more than the music part of it. It was believing in myself, advocating for myself, knowing that I'm an okay singer and I can hold pitch and that kind of thing. And that ended up being a pretty defining moment. One of the defining moments as far as confidence and mm -hmm. and standing up for myself and asking to do something that I'm not exactly sure I can do, but I ended up doing that and yeah. it was a pretty cool thing. Yeah, because that's a really big moment because we, I know when we talk about teaching and parenting and stuff, we talk about being the, the other the other person in the support system that you need to support the, the person you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But what you're talking about is there, there, there eventually has to be something from the actual person, you know, I mean the, the support system can impact your self-confidence or whatever in a right. drastic way, but you, you even had pushback. I mean, in, in a little bit of way, right? The te not, not that the teacher told you you couldn't, do it but you didn't have the ultimate you know oh you're perfect good job you know you can do it you know you you had to advocate yourself and that, right. that's just that's big I mean that's yeah and like I said I, I'm not sure why I wasn't chosen to be the mm -hmm. original soprano but I felt I could yeah. do it and it really ended up working out yeah yeah that's cool um okay so then so then you you have your high school days or whatever um uh, tell me, 
Tell me what the Suzuki method is. Well, uh, I had never heard of Suzuki. Uh, the method of teaching music or Shinichi Suzuki mm -hmm. or anything about him. Um, and I think, I'm trying to remember, you were probably two and a half or three. Mm -hmm. And I was watching a Phil Donahue show uh, way <laughs> that's back a, that's, early, that's 80s style right there. Early 80s. And <laughs> one day you were down for a nap and so was your brother. And I'm looking at this show about the Suzuki method to teach stringed instruments. And I also wasn't very familiar with cello and violin and viola and bass and all that because we had played electric instruments in the country band and I didn't grow up with that. We went to a small high school. We didn't have an orchestra or anything, but I watched that one hour show and there wasn't internet at the time. But I was like, I have got to, or if there was, it was very new. I have got to find out more about this because it was, uh, it was more impressive to me as a teacher almost than the music part of it because right away I was like, this whole method for teaching is so spot on. It is so awesome from the literature they were using to the methodology that they were using to teach and um, that there was such a high parent involvement that parents were asked, expected to stay at the lesson. There's no dropping your child off at piano lessons at the door, leaving, not having a clue how to play yourself or how to support them in practice all week. And um, a lot of those things and I knew, I knew right away that I was hopefully going to promote music yeah. lessons with my kids before I even had kids, for sure, when both you and your brother yeah, were Yeah, you born. had that on the brain. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, I didn't yeah. really have anything in mind, whether it would be singing or instrument or whatever, but I certainly had something in mind after that day I saw yeah. the show. And so I honestly, since it's been a long time ago, I don't remember exactly the route I went, but somehow I came across a public school music teacher that had gone for her Suzuki training and decided um, that she was going to start a Suzuki music program in Fort Dodge, Iowa. And so I contacted her and I don't know how I found her. I don't, yeah. I don't know how, I don't remember. But you were the first student that she had. We were... Um, interviewed by the newspaper mm -hmm. just because it was something new in the Fort Dodge area and um, I think there were there were a few there was a handful yeah. of kids in that beginning group and because um, we have pictures of big group I mean you yeah. know of, of when right. we were very young and right and, and so mm -hmm. we started you on lessons when you were three on violin mm -hmm. And then um, the next year, um, when your brother, or two years later, when mm -hmm. your brother was four, we started him on cello. Yeah. And um, so, so talk about that because the 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 two things with it because I, I went through the program, so I have definitely both of us have a very high understanding of what it is, you know. So like the first thing that is amazing is that parent involvement. So talk about that. So it's not just lessons. Right, I can. No, you you really are expected to attend the lessons. Now, I don't know so much when you get up to be high school or junior high as it's that important, right. but definitely with three and four year olds, um, that you, they can't do nothing, right? They can't do anything, <laughs> uh, not much anyway. And so you attend the lessons, you take notes. Uh, they actually encourage um, that the parent rents a violin, mm -hmm. a full size violin. Most of the kids at three are starting on a 16th size violin, which you did. So the parent is playing along with the kids. The parent kid. is playing along with them. I've yeah. never played violin, but you can model. You're taking lessons. A three-year-old's mm -hmm. not going to remember what's really? assigned that, that week yeah. for lessons. You're taking notes, but then you're intricately involved in 
the lessons at home as well and given good advice about a three-year-old really needs like a 10-minute lesson mm -hmm. that's about it right. for attention span yeah but it'd be better to do a 10-minute lesson seven days a week than try to do a half-hour lesson one day a week right before the lesson so it's really a different approach than traditional music lessons, whether they're trumpet or they're saxophone mm -hmm. or they're piano or voice, in the fact that you drop your student off and um, the teacher would take notes and, and whatever, but you also send them to the den to practice, not necessarily mm -hmm. sitting there with them. So to me, I could tell as an educator that that was going to be a very successful. Oh, yeah. Um, you can't beat that, right? Right. I, I told my students, it's like assistant teacher with you at home. Right. You know, right. I mean, that, yeah. And, uh, and you also are obviously getting some massive like support, just emotional support with from the parent, right? right. That they're literally doing it with you. Right. You know? Yeah, so, so that was the first thing that I thought was really cool later on, realizing how powerful that was. Um, talk about the ear training. Well, in Suzuki, and I don't claim to be a Suzuki teacher, so it's what I know as a parent, but you do the ear training before the sight reading. So in that approach, their thought is that if your brain isn't wired to really learn to start to read words until seven, probably music is somewhat the same. Mm -hmm. Well, Suzuki, which started in Japan, um, they start having their child listen to the Suzuki tapes in utero mm -hmm. as the minute they're born. Yes. And for the most part, around three to five years old, you start actually playing. And so you've been listening and honing in on your ear training and your listening skills since however soon the parent starts that and for sure by three or four well if you think about not then learning to sight read and starting the note reading till seven you have three to five years of that ear training of listening so for example in suzuki book one you're listening to the first three songs continually even though when you're just starting the twinkles mm -hmm. and the variations of the twinkle so by the time you get to go tell Aunt Rhody or you get to one of those first songs, you've been listening to it for months. And so you have memorized it, you've memorized how it sounds, you've memorized the pitch, the rhythm, and yeah, the everything. Rhythm, yeah, yeah. everything. And mm -hmm. so um, those kids end up kids slash adults slash, you know, junior high, young adults and teens have such a good ear. Um, because they started with the ear training and the listening training and they're also good sight readers because they are taught that but it seems like many uh, people who started with the sight reading can have resistance or trouble going back to the ear training because they don't trust themselves that they cannot have the music in front of them at the piano or on the music stand yeah yeah so like so we've seen what's happened with me you know playing improvising and going off in the bands and stuff and and having this massive ear training you know at the beginning of my life and so like the so i guess you using the using the ear training you know that that was kind of hilarious like even when I got to sixth grade and and I did that musical right mm -hmm. and and like I'm sitting out there and it's well Oklahoma, Oklahoma. yeah Oklahoma so so we're sitting out there and they're doing this musical play in uh, in, in the elementary school and she knew that you know I, I can't be in fourth grade strings because it's like I, I'm like six years ahead of all the other kids or five or whatever so she put me in advanced strings and uh and then she's like okay uh libby comer was her name and she she's like i need to give him something to do <laughs> you yeah, know okay. some and, opportunities yeah. and some something to keep motivation going mm -hmm. and challenge you and so that was a moment where uh you know surrey with a fringe on top and all those all those great so oh, what a beautiful morning and all those songs in that musical 
you know, I'd heard those a million times already. And so I, I don't know how she figured this out, but I probably during class, I was just like, Oh, that one, da, 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 you yeah, know, and right, I just like right. played it, she, you know? And so, so she had me come up before the musical started and mm -hmm. sit there on, in front right. of it, you know, in front of the auditorium and just play it. Yeah. yeah. But that was all year. Right. right. That was like, you right. know. I think that was awesome for her as an educator that she was trying to find ways to continue motivating you. So being in beginning strings where kids were just learning the names of the strings and you were playing Gavat from Mignon or whatever you were playing at the time, mm -hmm. it was, um, she found opportunities to challenge you and um, let you do things for your uh, interest level but also your ability level and that was the signs of a really good teacher I sure think. yeah and then last thing on this and then i want to get to some more teaching stuff to finish up here but uh um tell everybody what she said to you about you yeah to sight read. so you yeah. would have been 10 because mm -hmm. in the public school in most schools but in in our area here you could start strings in fourth grade and you're usually 10 in fourth grade so um, you, you were already, you know, you could read music, but you were relying a, li <laughs> yeah, a little bit more on your ear than you were on reading the music because you, if you had heard it a few times by practicing it or the teacher was playing it on the piano or singing it or humming it or whatever, yeah. then you really just memorized it. So she said we and at home when i was still working with you and practicing with you i might you know read the treble clef and play it on the mm -hmm. piano and she said stop singing it stop humming it stop playing it by yeah. an etude book which isn't any melody it's yeah. not a song it's just notes and of course you learned really quickly then but mm -hmm. she had really good advice that his ear is so good that he's he just reading it anymore he's yeah. not reading it he's just mm -hmm. listening to it a couple of times and he's got it because they yeah. were fairly simple songs so that was good advice and it didn't take very long and and that you were a good sight reader but yeah that that's the funny thing that i find about because that's the number one uh retort to Suzuki is is because right, it, they because don't learn to read music. That they don't learn to read, and and when enough. you're when you're an orchestra, you have to, you just have right. to. Sh right. Short of a few blind people right. that can handle it, you know. But they, like, so that's the biggest argument against Suzuki. But what I find funny, and I know you you and I have talked about this, is that when you get to high school, their whole freaking front row is Suzuki kids, right. you know. And so the teachers are like getting mad at Suzuki because then other kids can sight read, but then they. They're right. all their best kids are six years and ahead and they're, they've got way better ears. They right. got, you know, their pitch and is better. Their rhythm is better than all the other kids are, you know. Right. Even though they're not actually looking at the book and sight reading, the theory has already started at three mm -hmm. through the music games, through looking at music symbols. What is this? What is this? and the other methodology. So you're doing all the precursors to that, just that the brains of many three-year-olds are not ready to read music. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So so cool. So so last little thing that I wanted to talk to you about a little bit is, is your teaching. Then then after after you started us, you kind of started on your, your pretty thick teaching career there. Um, you taught special ed 24 years, right? Yeah, I was a special educator. I went to uh, school for that, uh, both undergraduate and master's, mm -hmm. and I taught for 25 years, mm -hmm. but I think I had taught four or five years before I had mm -hmm. you and your brother, and then went back after you were both in school full-time, and... Uh, it, it was interesting. I think that's some of the things that I saw about some of the many positive things about being in that family band that I saw many years later that I already had the love of music before he asked if we wanted to join the band. And by the way, I was in the family band for 15 years. Playing. Yeah, Even yeah. after I got married and had kids, I would play on New Year's Eve or special things if I was able to. But I then continued my love of music through starting my own two children in music and being able to enjoy watching that 
progress and process and that both you and your brother were extremely musical and did very well and you ended up creating a career of that and getting your own music ed degree but I I already knew about the therapeutic value of music in the fact that it was in our home we didn't have TV on that much. We didn't really watch that much sports, at least when I was at home. There were seven children, so mm -hmm. lots of things happened after I left home. But uh, And I wasn't an athlete, but there was always music being played, being practiced, being rehearsed. And all, listened to. Listened yeah. to, yeah. all that. And I end up starting in special education, and I taught children that were... Um, had pretty significant delays and disabilities and I it really implemented without even really knowing I was going to wasn't really premeditated a lot of music in my classroom because since my main instrument is vocal you always have your voice with you yeah. you don't have to have a, a, an instrument and cart it around you can sing on the playground you can sing walking down the hall and you can sing anywhere on the bus yeah. and I ended up finding about how calming it was to kids who were upset how you could teach academic skills through songs and many of the children's songs are singing counting and ABCs and learning uh, academic mm. things, but ended up doing a lot of that in my classroom. And I've told you the funny story mm. about finding pianos. Mm -hmm. Somehow finding pianos, or maybe the pianos found their way to me. Yeah, yeah. Every school That's I was very in. Sad. Yeah, very sad every school you, yeah. I was in, I would get there and I'd say, whose piano is that in the hallway? And people would say, I don't know, I don't know, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I'd go ask the music teacher. I don't know, I think that came out of the kindergarten room, but the new kindergarten teacher doesn't play piano. So I'd go ask the principal, uh, can I have that piano? Mm -hmm. And they're like, yeah, that'd be fine. It's going out to the shed. And so I would end up either bringing mm -hmm. it into the classroom or having it in some area we could go to uh, because... Uh, all of my children got to go to music just like all the other students did for the same amount of times and they were integrated with the general education students to have music but sometimes behavior would preclude them being able to stay or being able to understand or uh, whatever and so in addition to them getting traditional public school music they got music in my classroom mm -hmm. and um, with this piano and uh, that ended up being a big part of my um, instruction in the public mm -hmm. school is using music even though I wasn't trained as an adapted music teacher or music educator but the love of music and um, that permeated mm -hmm. my teaching. Yeah, so, so you so I know the last stuff I want to talk about is a little bit about motivation. So you, you've had a, a cool philosophy that you've talked to me about a lot about in, in regards to motivation where motivation doesn't have to be cookies and candy and money or whatever. Right. You probably used your music in different ways as motivation, right? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, everyone loves to sing, everyone loves to dance, especially children. Yeah. And they love to be sang too, they love to sing with you and clap, and it's a way that students who have anxiety, student, and we all have anxiety at times, that uh, if nothing else was working, we could sing, we could hum, we could go take a walk, and we could do that, and it was a huge motivator to go to music time. Yeah. And I could have a 10-minute music time every single day in my classroom where they might have only had music once a week in the music room with the music teacher, and it was a supplemental thing, and it was a calming activity, and mm. it was a fun activity. Yeah. Talk about, and you've talked to me a lot about using games in your especially for like the first through fourth grade specifically maybe even a tight couple of years after that but right. you've talked to me a lot about how uh 
like music games. So, so talk, talk about that for a second. Uh, we, we definitely used games during music time mm -hmm. and um, knowing any children. I always taught pretty much kindergarten through third, so mm -hmm. that's five to eight or nine-year-olds. I have taught older, but primarily the 25 years was 90% that age group. And there's no group other than preschoolers and toddlers that like games better than that group <laughs> of kids. And music games is no uh, exception. So I bought musical instruments. They were nothing expensive, just what a toddler and preschool and kindergartners would use. But they love having a tambourine or the bells or maracas or that and being able to um, learn rhythms mm -hmm. and um, we always had a lot of paraprofessionals that worked in our classroom and, and you need that in this type of classroom. So we could do hand over hand, we could sh teach them rhythms and they, they don't sit still very well, all children of that age, especially children with disabilities and they um, we're able to stand and dance and jump mm -hmm. and play the instruments and follow directions like do this and then I could show them a rhythm or mm -hmm. I, we could sing together and um, it was very powerful. Like I said, many of the folk tunes as well as just traditional songs that you sing to children teach skills. Um, mm -hmm. of counting and ABCs and, and that kind of thing. And so it was therapeutic, but it was also academic because you're teaching yeah. following directions and in a way that is different and way more fun than sitting and trying to have a child do a worksheet that doesn't want to do a worksheet at oh, the table. Yeah, yeah. You were telling me about maybe just give, I don't know, two or three of those examples of music games like in a private lesson setting that you could do. Because we've talked about that a lot and the, the fact that us teachers think they're completely dumb, right? This little game you're doing is the dumbest thing in the world, but to the kid it's not, right? right? Well, it was a little different with me as a parent and the games that you played in Suzuki as, right. as what I did in the classroom because sure. we have certain... Um, things that need to be taught um, mm -hmm. in the public school, but for example, when uh, you and your brother were taking um, Suzuki music lessons from three to six, you might have a game where you're learning posture and you're learning the rest position for holding a violin and the play position. Um, so there'd be games of um, Simon Says or follow the leader or do this and the teacher would show mm -hmm. model the way that you should stand in rest position if the teacher says we're in rest position. All right, everybody do play position. And so that would be a game, but it was teaching really important skills mm -hmm. about how to hold the violin, how to not play with your um, bow as a sword, sword and that type of thing. Um, but also there would be games to learn um, to learn the musical symbols. You haven't started reading music yet, but you need to know treble clef and bass clef if you play cello yeah. and all that. So you can do flashcards, but kids like to move. They like movement. They like to get up. So you could have a game where you... Um, are going and looking for something on the floor and going and standing on it. Mm -hmm. So um, there's um, there's all sorts of games. There's uh, following directions, singing games where you're modeling what someone is singing. Yeah, yeah. So and you, yeah. So you'd put uh, you'd put some stuff on the floor, mm -hmm. right? Put little right. papers on the floor and and go stand on. Go stand quarter on the treble note, clef yeah, or, or treble quarter, clef yeah, yeah, yeah. or the word forte yeah. or whatever skills it was that you were teaching. Yeah. And that, those are those are really, like I said, I think teachers like myself that are really good with the older kids, that seems really dumb, you know, but, but that's exactly what you're doing. And, right. and I had to, I know I had to get over the idea that, like, for example, kindergarten's about following directions and that's it. They're not really learning a whole right. lot. It's just about sit on the floor in a circle with everybody else and no, just learning the actual symbols or what it what what is a high sound, what is a low right. sound. I know you're great at stuff or thinking because right. you and I joke all the time about 
I can't, you, your paras are like, I can't even think that low, right. you know, and I know you and I have talked about that a ton of times. Also, for example, when I was doing music with the kindergarten through second graders in the public school, I would do things like they love to hold props. Also, if you're holding props, you're not doing other things with your hands that you shouldn't be doing, you know, rolling around, touching mm -hmm. other people, whatever yeah. it is kids do at that age. But... If we were singing a song like um, Bingo, there was a farmer had a dog, mm -hmm. Bingo was his name, oh. um, I would have B-I-N-G-O. Well, everyone has their hand up so high, I hope I get to be one of the five to hold the B, the yeah, I. Yeah. It sounds silly. It's not silly to kids. They love that. And so when it was their turn, they lifted the B on B-I-N-G-O or uh, the the letter that you were working on and that's really fun it's yeah. powerful same thing yeah. with not everyone got to hold a musical instrument during that song mm -hmm. but yeah that, that's really it was neat. their turn they love that it's it's hard to, it's just hard for people to get into that mindset right. of knowing what those things are it's going to be motivating um so so last thing i wanted to ask you was um talk uh, i know you've talked about um jane smith was one of your other she taught with you right Right. And you've talked to me about a funny thing because you, cause you guys had to deal with um, those parent teacher conferences that are that are sometimes kind of tough, you know, in your in your area where you're you're kind of sometimes telling the parent some things that they don't well, exactly. Difficult, yeah, difficult news. Difficult news about their child, et cetera. And like but one thing that you were joking about with Jane is and that you were making an extreme example but she's like she would tell people that they're about ready to die but then by the end of the conversation she's thanking them you know like she just has that way of telling right. you she, she had a good way of of giving people news that might be hard to receive but she presented it in a really great way yeah i would i would argue that you're good at that as well she's she's maybe really good at that but you're also very good at that of doing of and this gets back to a very general topic of, of motivation in general, of, of how do you, um, what is our role towards somebody else in regards to motivation? How far can we go? What can we say? Can we make them or can't we make the, you know, whatever the situation is. Um, I know that like what I've talked to you about a lot as a private teacher is you're, you're sitting there and you're seeing either the student or the parents and they're portraying a certain amount of effort or a certain amount of commitment to this lesson or whatever. And you and I have talked about what are the, not even what the do's and don'ts are, but what is probably not going to work, you know, or how much to expect. Or can you just talk a minute about your... That. Well, thanks for the compliment. Mm -hmm. I don't think that at the beginning of my career, I was as good mm -hmm. at doing what mm -hmm. you complimented me about yeah. as I was toward the end. But I think, um, number one, in motivating people, uh, you have to have a basic respect for other people to begin with. Um, and if they trust you and know that you really respect them as a person if the student knows that if the teacher knows or if the uh, parent knows that um, you're already halfway there on that mm -hmm. on on helping people get motivated and it, it's a challenge for all teachers and all parents and pretty much everyone to be a positive influence on people and how you could positively motivate them to do what it is you want them to do but I think that general respect and knowing that really people motivate themselves, but you can certainly create environments that make them want to be motivated more than environments that really hinder them being motivated. And um, certainly you can't put a sledgehammer to people's heads. You have to... Um, build a rapport with them and um, even when things aren't going well you have to be respectful and and everyone know that that you really want the best for them and then you have to have a lot of strategies in your arsenal and it, under your belt to um, when people are fidgeting around and um, and having excuses or they didn't practice or they didn't do their homework 
and working with them and telling them why it's so important and um, helping them get ideas about how they could practice at home and come back and how they could be a little put more a little more effort into it because the outcome will be better for them they'll play better at school or they'll learn their ABCs or they'll learn to count to three or they'll learn their addition tables or whatever mm, yeah. and it's certainly not easy but uh, a teach a really good teacher can help motivate people but they choose to be motivated in mm. the the end of it all yeah. and if, if you're a good teacher and you hang with it and you learn a lot and go you know teach a lot of children you become better at it yeah it's one of those things that I think parents and teachers become better at motivating other people the longer they do it mm -hmm. yeah I know like like I said for my private students um, I deal a lot more with to me it's a lot more with the parents than it is mm -hmm. the, the kid especially the younger you know the younger they get um, high schoolers you know they, right. they need to start right doing some stuff on their own or having their own internal uh, internal motivation themselves but like it like so I'll sit there and it it always floors me at the stuff that like trumps something else mm -hmm. that, that that's always fascinated me in the world how you you can for example you can have literally all the best strategies possible in the universe but if they just are you know if the parents are like yeah I'm not doing it <laughs> you know then then it's then you're done you know all, all of your knowledge is now out the window because mm -hmm. they so like that's why I'm a, I'm always fascinated by that of of telling the telling the parent listen to these Suzuki CDs over and over and over you need to you know be practicing with them only do ten minutes only do you know and I just find that really funny that I mean and and then so so I would want to go through and tell them. What, what do you think about the idea of, like, because I had a lot of success, or not success, but I had a lot of, like, you were talking about growing experience at things like contests and concerts and stuff. Mm -hmm. So as a teacher, I would want to, as one of my motivators, to throw something external at them, like a chair audition in orchestra or a contest or a concert where you are giving them this opportunity to step up themselves mm -hmm. where it's not just you telling in lesson but you you set this concert in October or something and then you keep telling them all right you know and so now you have this or the kids at school can be also another external motivator I want to beat that kid you know I want to beat him at, at chairs right. or whatever and but sometimes that doesn't work right because you they have to eventually come right I mean, what, what do you think about that attitude of, like, so, so that's basically trying to, like, I hate this word, but that's almost trying to, like, force it out of them, you know, force the motivation out of them by throwing this. Well, you always want to, I would call it a cha challenging them, really. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you always want to uh, set opportunities that, you know, are a little bit of a stretch for them, mm -hmm. but they maybe wouldn't have thought of it, they're a little scared of it. But it also challenges them. I think that's what your teacher did in sixth grade by saying, do you want to play in front of the whole school and all the parents? Right. And, um, and I don't know that you were afraid of that, but it was probably a little more of a challenge than yeah. what you were doing in strength class right at that time. And so she kind of presented a challenge there um, and continued to do so. Um, back on that, you're right. I think that if you're teaching children, whether it's music or whatever you're teaching, and they're under middle school or high school, you are working a lot with the parent because they're your co-teacher when you're not there. So you're right, you are working with them. And I would say in the, the case of a music teacher that that parent is probably fairly motivated. If they brought their child, found you as a teacher, and they're paying for lessons, they actually do want their child to um, yeah. do well. Um, but some parents, I don't really know what the percentage is, you might know more than me, but of parents that have their children take lessons that actually played an instrument themselves, but mm -hmm. I think there's a fair amount of them that didn't play an instrument, right. but they see the value in it, and they want their children to be well-rounded, and they're also doing sports and, and other activities, which is all great. 
but um, I think they do need to have that educator give them really good ideas because they don't always have them themselves on what activities do I do, how often should we practice, what's the normal, and um, give that's the job of the educator is to not only motivate the student but motivate the parent that you know if you're practicing a little bit every day you're probably going to make more progress than practicing a long time only yeah. once a week but they um, you're reinforcing those right. you're reinforcing the bow grip and the fingers right. and, the, and the terminology too right they're hearing that stupid right. word quarter note uh, you know right so um, i think that um you're right that you're working a lot with the parent and um your, the public school teachers only have conferences, you know, a few times a year, but the music teacher probably sees that parent every lesson, either picking them up, dropping them off, or sitting in on the lesson. So you can really help that person. And then I kind of address the uh, challenging students, and I think that it is good. They don't always like that. They don't always... Um, react well at the beginning but sometimes they are pretty excited about it when they get an opportunity to do something that's more advanced that yeah. um, that they so so la last question is the the that idea there that we're and every single parent has to deal with this where you're sitting there you know learning how to sweep is a really really good idea for this kid right you know that, that I mean you you can't even start arguing that point with somebody that this isn't a good idea that you know you learn this skill or uh, a great example is learning how to just sit there like in kindergarten learning how to sit still or whatever the skill is as a parent or teacher what is that's where I'm at a standstill myself is when I can give you my 19 page reasoning of why this is a good idea and why learning how to do improv will help you in all of your life or to, or learning the confidence of playing this concert or the sweeping or the mowing the lawn or whatever what is you know last question is what is our role in regards to again i hate this word but kind of i don't really care if you like it or not you you're, you need to learn this because this is what all people in society do when the kid doesn't want to do it like that's where we're that's where the well, it's yeah. really hard, especially, I think, in music lessons, because you, as an adult, nothing to do with being a parent of musicians mm -hmm. or loving mu music or playing in the family band, that I hear stories more of people that started lessons and quit more than mm -hmm. your story, yeah. started lessons and never quit. Yeah. And, and every one of them say, I mm -hmm. wish... I, my parent would have never let me quit lessons at fourth grade, yep. except that they were raising such a ruckus. The parent finally gave, uh -huh. finally gave in, and I understand why yeah. because they wear you down. And and then and they're if, like, "Why'd you let me quit?" Right? But if they if they truly aren't going to try and they they're just done with it, that you know they are done with it. They tried it. Mm -hmm. They didn't love it, and they maybe weren't as good at it as other people, and they knew that. So, uh, you know, as a teacher, whether it's working with the parents, working with the students, working with whomever, you know, all you can do is set really good examples and put it out there and someone else has to pick it up. Yeah. And you can, there are certain, certainly people, teachers that are better at that. And, and there are people that, students that work harder for them than they might work for other people. They, whether you call it, they have magic, they have magic tricks. Yeah, They're yeah, good yeah. at their tricks or whatever, but you you can't make someone love it. You can't make them have a skill they don't have. And um, sometimes those same parents that wish they hadn't quit have their their children start, and they are really are good at staying with mm -hmm. it. I can't say that you and your brother never. You know, that every time I said it was time to practice, that you wanted to quit what you're doing and come practice. You didn't. Yeah. You did probably more, right. bigger percentage of time than other people did. But I think that. You um, weren't special in that way. I mean, we right. didn't want to practice just like every other right. person on exactly. the planet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but there. Um, you just have to have to know that you're putting something out there and your enthusiasm and your passion and your. Uh, expertise a lot of times keeps 
kids in lessons longer than they wanted to and sometimes it keeps them in lessons and their love of music forever but also no matter how long a student takes music they had they have gained more of an appreciation and a love for music than they would have had had they not taken any lessons and as you found with adults coming to you to start back up that they find they've missed it they wish they'd stayed with it so you know, you can just do what you you can do, and they see your enthusiasm and your great techniques and your great ability to make it fun, and it the rest is kind of in their hands. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, uh, so so last thing here, I know that you've had a really neat uh, kind of photo business happening here in the last couple of years, right? And uh, you kind of had a love of photography right and now you're kind of running a business tell me a minute about that yeah I um like I said I taught for 25 years I absolutely loved that I, it couldn't have been a better career or a more meaningful career and I loved that but a few years back I knew that that was kind of coming to an end and and that I wanted to do something else so I had always had photography as a hobby for years and years since high school. There's a lot of pictures of us, Mom. Yes, there are. And so <laughs> all around the house. <laughs> so I decided that I would do something totally different, and I knew that my second career I wanted to do something with my art, and mm. I, it probably wasn't going to be music per se, but mm. I launched a photography business called the Studio Fifty Six, mm. and um, <laughs> and it's been so fun. I take portraits, pictures of um, families and children and high school seniors. And then I take a lot of um, still life and nature photos and I make greeting cards with those. Mm-hmm, that's neat. You like the lifestyle stuff better, right? I like the lifestyle photography where we meet in a park and I just capture your family being a family and children doing what they do. And the one kind of cool thing that um, I do um, charitable um, uh, wise is that I've continued working with the community of families that have children with disabilities and mm-hmm. I do a lot of charity work with them in in many ways mm-hmm. taking pictures of families that have children with autism or Down syndrome mm-hmm. and that's kind of married my first career with my second yeah, career that's, neat. And that's really that's fun. really really neat yeah so um, come uh, come check out her site the studio 56.com or yeah. whatever yeah so um, Anything else? No. No. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks, sir. Thanks for coming and doing the interview. Uh, um, this is the first one of many, hopefully, and we'll kind of talk about it like we did today. A lot of different, different topics of um, music and teaching and uh, music scene and all, all sorts of stuff. So, um, anyway, I'll see you guys next time. Bye.